Good morning, and welcome to the radio broadcasts of the Brinesburg Missionary Baptist Church. you to worship with us as we begin the service with this chorus it says all hail king jesus all hail emmanuel he's the king of kings he's the lord of lords would you stand with me and let's worship him together and bring us into worship here we go two one all hail king jesus all hail God is holy. Our God is awesome. Let's worship Him. How great is our God and how great they are together. Here we sing. The splendor of the King, clothed in majesty. Let all the earth rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light And darkness tries to hide It trembles at his voice It trembles at his voice How great is our God Sing with me How great is our God And all see how great How great is our God. Age to age he stands and time is in his hands. Beginning and the end, beginning and the end. The God had three and one. Father, Spirit, Son, the lion and the lamb, the lion and the lamb. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. 
heart will sing how great is our God. Sing it. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. When Christ shall come, we shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great! Oh, sing it, church. Lift your voices up. Let's sing now. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. And uh, the Lord's just telling you to come and to lay it down. Uh, maybe it's a, a, just a need of a family member or a friend and you, you want to pray for them and intercede on their behalf. Maybe it's a, another issue, but uh, the Lord's laid that on your heart. And this morning, uh, whether it be health issues or relationship issues, financial issues, uh, whether it be an issue of, of salvation, we just want you to know that this altar is open this morning. And so... Uh, if you want to come, we we'd say this is the time. If you want to make that place at your pew an altar, uh, do that in your own homes and in front of your couch or that chair, wherever you may be. Uh, make this, this time a time of you just coming before the Lord, humbling yourself, and let's spend some time with him. So with every head bowed and with all eyes closed, the altar is open at this time.
Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we are so grateful that when we are weak, that you are strong. Lord, that when we find ourselves in the very midst of the storm, with the raging wind and waves, Lord, that you are right there with us, holding us through it all. And so, Lord, as we come to you this morning, Lord, some of us are facing dire issues in our own lives or the life of a loved one. Lord, some of us have gotten diagnoses that are not easy to hear. And so, Lord, we just lift up those needs to you and ask that you would do the work that only you can do. For some of us, relationships are broken. And, Lord, we don't know how they could ever be put back together again. But, Lord, you do. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that work of reconciliation. For some, Lord, it's a financial issue. and Lord, it just seems like we don't know how we're going to make the ends meet. And so, Lord, we ask for you to be the great provider. But, Lord, most of all, we pray for the lost around about us. Lord, some here this morning don't yet have that relationship with you. And I pray that today might be the day of salvation for them. But for others of us, Lord, we're praying for that one that you've laid on our heart. Lord, that you've given us such a great burden for. Lord, we desire to see them come into relationship with you. And so, Lord, even again this morning, we pray that you would do the work that only you can do in their hearts and in their lives. And, Lord, we will give you the honor and the glory and the praise for it. Lord, we love you. Yes, we know. 
And we have been chosen to send forth His light. So it doesn't matter if your worth is great or small. God needs some willing vessels just common garments that's all and God uses common garments to do uncommon things and God His uncommon dreams. It's not what you are now that matters. You see, it's what He can make you to be. For if And change your life, then surely He can use you and me. For if God can take an old common garment and change your life, then surely He can use you and me.
disk of my shame and regret But when I hear you whisper, child, lift up your head I remember, oh God, you're not done with me yet I am redeemed You said So I'll shake off these heavy chains and wipe away every stain Cause I'm not who I used to be Because I don't have to be the old man inside of me Cause his day is long dead and gone Because I've got a new name, a new life, I'm not the same and I hope that will carry me home I am redeemed You set me free So I'll shake off these heavy chains and wipe away every stain Cause I'm not who I used to be I am redeemed You set me free So I'll shake off these heavy chains And wipe away every stain Cause I'm not who I used to be Oh God, I'm not who I used to be Jesus, I'm not who I used to be Today you'll be listening to the message preached by our pastor, Brother Brad Walker, during our Sunday morning worship service. May God bless you as you listen to his message. Amen. Thank you, Brother Tim, for that special music this morning. And what a wonderful job that uh, the music this morning has done to prepare our hearts for what we're going to be looking at this morning in Revelation chapter 5, of speaking about the worthiness of the Lamb, of speaking about the majesty of God, of speaking about redemption. And we'll see this morning that subject of redemption, uh, really, if we don't understand redemption, we're not going to understand the Old or the New Testament, that the whole of history is God's plan of redemption. It's, it's him working that out to the very end. And so uh, we're going to see that even this morning. And so a wonderful way for us to get our hearts ready for what he wants to say to us this morning. As you turn there to Revelation chapter 5, we're going to be focused on the subject of weep not, behold, the lion and the lamb. As you turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you once again for this time as we have lifted our hearts and our voices in praise, as we've spent time in prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity now to study your word. And Lord, speak to us, Lord, especially now as we begin to understand what it means to, to be in your very presence and we find ourselves in your throne room and Lord, we see the glory all around about you, Lord, and the plan that you have and your worthiness to, to take the scroll, Lord, uh, stir our hearts to remember 
that you're not a God among many gods, but you are the one and only, one true and living God, creator of heaven and earth, that you are the way and the truth and the life, and that none of us will come into a relationship with the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to remember who you are in all your majesty and splendor. And Lord, if there's even one here today that doesn't yet know you as Savior and as Lord, I pray that today they might be saved. Lord, we love you. Have your will, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we come to chapter 5, I think it would be good for us to just review for just a moment what we've already seen. Um, In chapter 4, John is caught up into heaven. And when he arrives there, he sees God himself seated on a glorious throne. And John sees heaven arrayed much like a courtroom. God is preparing to unleash his wrath on the inhabitants of the earth. And in the midst of this awesome scene, we see that heaven is filled with the praises of Jehovah. Heaven understands that the Lord is about to do. They understand that, 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 that judgment is about to come. The inhabitants of that city praise the Lord for his glory and for his power and for his creation. And they acknowledge his right to judge the earth. It seems that John is taken to heaven to give him a heavenly perspective concerning what is about to happen on the earth. I mentioned to you last week, uh, but it's still true that when the events of this earth are viewed from a purely earthly perspective, they can cause us to have fear and doubt and confusion. We look around about us and we see all that's going on in our nation, in our, in our own communities. We see maybe what's going on in our families. And it seems like it's chaos. But when all those events of history are viewed through the eyes of heaven, everything makes sense. And so in chapter 4, as it ends with with God receiving the praise of his created ones and of his redeemed ones, heaven is literally vibrating with the voices of those caught up in their love for Almighty God. And so chapter 5 finds us in the same courtroom in heaven. Now, Praise has ceased for a moment, and heavenly business is about to be transacted. And we're going to have a front row seat as all of this unfolds. We're about to find out that in heaven, Jesus Christ is the central figure. He is the center of all the attention. I believe that heaven will be glorious. I believe that it will be a wonderful place. I believe that there will be streets of gold and the walls of jasper and the gates of pearl. And we last week looked at the, the crystal sea and so much other that, that will be glorious. I believe that we'll see the great uh, saints throughout scripture of Abraham and Moses and Paul and, and all the rest. But the main attraction of heaven will be Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so In this passage, we're going to see Jesus himself in his rightful place, glorified and exalted in heaven. This passage sets the stage for the judgment that will come during the tribulation, and it also reveals Jesus in all of his exalted glory. There's great assurance in this passage for when we we feel overwhelmed by the seeming chaos in our world, there is great assurance here. We're reminded in these verses to weep not. Behold the lion and the lamb. Please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 7. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book 
written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And it came, and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. You may be seated. What a, what a scene of glory. What a scene of majesty and splendor. And we see here in verse 1 that there is a mysterious scroll. A mysterious scroll. As this chapter begins, God is said to be holding a book. Now, I think it's, it's important for you to understand as we get started here, this is not a book like we have today. It's, it, our Bible that we have here, then we open it up and turn the pages. That's not the kind of book we're talking about. We're actually speaking of a scroll. Uh, paper was made in long sheets, and it was written on, and then it would be rolled up. And a portion would be written on, and then it would be rolled up and sealed. And another portion would be written on, and then that would be rolled up and be sealed. So this scroll that God holds, we're told that it has seven seals. It's a seven-sealed scroll. This is a mysterious scroll. So let's see if we can unravel some of the mysteries of this scroll. First, we see the character of this scroll. As we read these verses, the character of this scroll becomes very clear. First, it has something to do with man. Secondly, it has something to do with earth. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, the seals of this scroll began to be opened and the contents of the scroll read. And when they are, they reveal what will be happening on the earth during the tribulation period. But thirdly, it seems that the scroll has something to do with redemption. So when Jesus takes this scroll, he, he, he is praised for his redemptive work. This is a book of redemption. Redemption is something that, again, we talk about a lot. It is an important truth for us to understand. Understanding redemption is actually vital to understanding God's great plan for all of the ages. Everything that he does and everything that he has done is related to his redemptive work throughout history. So to understand redemption, we need to look back to the Old Testament. And in that time period, three things could be redeemed. First, a slave could be redeemed. If a master lost a slave, he could pay a redemption price and they could buy back their slave. And so that is what Jesus did when he died on the cross for us. We have been bought back with a price, the highest of prices. The price was the very life of the Lord Jesus. But secondly, a wife could, re could be redeemed. So if a woman were left 
as a widow with no male children, a close kinsman of her dead husband could redeem her and her husband's inheritance by paying a redemption price. So we understand this as, as the idea of a kinsman redeemer. And we look at the book of Ruth and we see there that Ruth was redeemed by Boaz when he paid a price to redeem both Ruth and her dead husband's inheritance. He became a kinsman redeemer to Ruth. Jesus died on the cross to redeem a bride unto himself. He came as the kinsman redeemer of us, the church. But we also see that a land could be redeemed. So if a man lost the land that he had been given as an inheritance, he could buy his property back by paying the redemption price. Remember, we studied about this actually last Sunday night in Jeremiah chapter 32. If you'll remember back to last Sunday night, Jeremiah... Uh, his uncle had lost a piece of property, a, a, a piece of inheritance property. And so Jeremiah's cousin comes to him when he is in prison, and he asks Jeremiah to buy back that property in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 8. Jeremiah does this, and we're told that he records the transaction on a scroll, and he seals it up. So from what I have been studying over the last little bit, it would, it would seem that when that they would record information related to the redemption on both sides of these scrolls. And so on the inside, they would write the reason that the land was forfeited. And then on the outside of the scroll, they would write the terms of redemption. And so apparently they kept two copies of this transaction. One was open to the public for, for all to read, but the other copy was to be kept sealed up. And so these scrolls were laid up in the temple in earthen jars for safekeeping. And so Jeremiah serves the function here as a kinsman redeemer for the property that belonged to his uncle. So what we're witnessing here in Revelation chapter 5 is the heavenly version of what men would do there in Old Testament times. So if you'll notice, the book, the book God holds here, the scroll that God holds here, is written on both sides. It's written up and it's sealed like a deed. So when Jesus died on the cross, he, did, he didn't just die for us. He died for a ruined creation. He, he died to reverse the curse. And so we see the contents of this scroll. I believe that this scroll that we see here is the title deed to the planet Earth. So when man sinned in Eden... Sin entered into our universe. Man fell that day, and God's creation came under that tragic curse as well. So we will never know the full extent to which sin has ruined the perfect creation. But we do know that when Adam fell, that we're told that creation fell as well. So here's the problem. When God made man and placed him in the Garden of Eden, God gave man dominion over all of creation, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So when man fell, he gave away his dominion, and Satan became the god of this world. And when God sent Jesus to redeem mankind on the cross, the blood of Jesus redeemed fallen sinners. But it was and is also sufficient to break the bondage of sin over creation. And the second Adam bought back everything the first Adam had given away. He bought it back as a kinsman redeemer. So 
this scroll in the hand of God is written within and without. And so on the inside is the tragic story of sin, of tragedy, of death, of, of failure, defeat. But on the outside are the terms of redemption. So if we could read these terms, we would find that the Redeemer must be one who is willing to redeem and must be one who is worthy to redeem. So secondly, this morning, we see in verses 2 through 4, a meticulous search. Now that we have some information regarding the character and the contents of this mysterious scroll that John sees in the hand of God, the scroll now moves front and center in heaven. And a search is made for one who is worthy to break the seals and to read the contents of this scroll. So we see the requirements of the, of the search first in verse 2. An angel asks the all-important question here. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy? The question is this. Who is morally fit to read the text of this scroll and to carry out all that is necessary in order to redeem the earth? Notice the angel did not say who is willing to open the scroll because there have been many, many men down through the ages that were more than willing but not able to rule. More than one ruler has determined that he would have dominion over all of the earth. Alexander the, Eighth, Alexander the Great uh, conquered the known world by the time that he was 33 years of age and wept because there were no more lands to conquer. He did not redeem the world. Rather, he left it in ruins. Before him, Nebuchadnezzar saw himself as the greatest ruler ever. But he was not worthy to take dominion either. We see Julius Caesar. We see Napoleon Bonaparte. We see Adolf Hitler and scores of others who were more than willing to have dominion over the earth. But they were not worthy. Soon the world will see the rise of a demonically charged madman that Revelation refers to as the Antichrist. And he will come far closer than any other mortal man to ruling the world. But in the end, he too will leave the world merely in ruins. He too will prove that he is unworthy to possess the title deed to the planet and to rule over all. Thank God that there is one who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And we will discover why he is worthy here in just a moment. Look at verse 3. And we see the reach of this search. We see the reach of the search. A search is made throughout the universe for one man who's worthy to take the book and to open its seals. And they searched heaven above and hell beneath and earth in between. And they could find no one who was worthy to take this scroll. There was not a saint in heaven, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Paul. None were found to be worthy. Gabriel, Michael, and all the angelic hosts of heaven They were not worthy to take the scroll. No living being on earth, no king, no president, no ruler, no billionaire, no politician, no scientist, no great preacher. No one was worthy to take this book. No one in hell, no demon, no doomed sinner, not even Satan himself was worthy to take this book. 
So they searched high and low, but no man was found who was even worthy to look upon the scroll that rested in the hand of Almighty God. And so we, they, we see the results of this search in verse 4. So when the results of the search are made public, something happens in, ha- in, in heaven that had probably never happened before and has never happened since. We see that John burst into tears. There are two words used for weeping in the New Testament. One is used in John eleven thirty five, 35, where the Bible says that Jesus wept. That refers to silent weeping. Jesus stood there at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, and he wept in silence. But the second word is used when Jesus wept over Jerusalem in Luke 19, 41. And this refers to uncontrollable weeping. It's the kind of crying that a small child does when they are brokenhearted. It's the idea of a loved one who has tragically uh, and unexpectedly lost a loved one. It's that shaking, weeping with all, all that is within you kind of crying. Unabashed weeping. Same word used of John's weeping in this verse. John is in heaven and he is weeping. He is weeping out loud because no one is worthy to open the scroll or even to look upon it. So why is John weeping? John knows what that book represents. He knows that if no one can open the scroll, that creation is doomed to feel the effects of sin for all of eternity. You see, this is the same reason that the Lord made Adam and Eve leave the garden after they had taken the forbidden fruit from, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they would not take that, that, tree, that fruit from the tree of life and be doomed to an eternity in that state. John feels that that's what's going on here. That if no one can open the scroll, then we are doomed. John's tears represents the tears of all humanity since the fall of man in Eden since Adam rebelled the very first time. John weeps, and he weeps for all. But then thirdly, I want you to look at verses 5 through 7, and we see a magnificent Savior. We have seen a mysterious scroll and the meticulous search, but in these verses, we're going to meet the one who is worthy to take the scroll, to look on that scroll and to open the scroll. We're introduced to to a magnificent Savior in these verses. John is weeping, but one of the elders comes to him and gives him some encouraging news. He tells John to wipe his eyes, to stop crying, because while no mere man is worthy, one has been discovered who is worthy. And let's, dis- let's, let's discover who this worthy one is this morning. Notice the elder's words, weep not, behold. Then he points John to Jesus. This is the message the church has been preaching For 2,000 years, weep not, but behold, regardless of the problem that you have, Jesus Christ is the solution. Weep not, look to Jesus, and he will meet your need. What a Savior we have in Jesus. Notice in verse 5, a conquering lion. The elder tells John that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. When John hears the title, Lion of the tribe of Judah, he immediately knows the elder 
is referring to Messiah. In Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, the Jews are promised that a great ruler will arise out of Judah. And like a lion, he will be powerful, he will be strong, he will be brave, he will be majestic, and he will be a mighty conqueror. And so the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would throw off the yoke of the oppression that they were under and would give them liberty. And they were looking for a military leader to lead them to victory over all of their enemies. This person is called the Root of David. This title reflects both the humanity and the deity of the Messiah who is to come. He would rise up and he would wither the the, 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 the line of David and, and bring it to power once again. This is the human side of the Messiah. But he also was the power, power behind the throne. The Messiah was the root out of which David sprang. And so he was a king, but he was also the king of kings. So when Jesus came to this world claiming to be Messiah, he did not fulfill the expectations of the Jewish people. Because they were looking for a military leader. And so instead of delivering the Jews from their bondage and a great military victory and establishing this kingdom of heaven on earth, Jesus went around healing people, of preaching, of performing miracles. And as a result, the Jews rejected him as their Messiah. And they crucified the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And when John hears of Jesus in heaven, he is described as a mighty lion and as a king, and the king of kings. And John is told that this lion has prevailed. And so Jesus is declared as the conquering lion. But look at verse 6, and we see a crucified lamb. So John turns around expecting to see this, this conquering lion. But instead of turning and seeing a lion, he sees a lamb as it had been slain. The word lamb actually means a little lamb. It, it means a pet lamb. When John looked, he expected to see this great and powerful lion, but what he saw instead was a little pet lamb. Of course, this scene is wrapped up in Jewish sim symbolism as well, because with this image of the little lamb, we are reminded of the Passover lamb, and we go back to Ex Exodus chapter 12. The people of Israel were instructed to select a perfect lamb, one without blemish, one without spot. And they were to take that lamb into their home, and they were to nourish it, and they were to take care of it for a number of days. And so during that time, guess what happens? Guess what happens when you're tenderly taking care of a little lamb over a number of days? That little lamb becomes a pet to you and to your family. And that's exactly what would have taken place. Over those numbers of days, this little lamb would have become near and dear to this family. But then, on the prescribed day, they were to take that little pet lamb and they were to kill it. And they were to apply its blood to the doorpost of their home. And they were to roast its little body and eat it. When the people did this, they were promised that they would be spared from the Lord as the, the death angel passed over the rest of Egypt. Don't you know that it must have broken the heart of each one of those families to have to kill their little pet lamb? Imagine what those families must have felt in having to do that. But in that little dead lamb, the Israelites were given a powerful 
picture of what the Lord was going to do someday through the Redeemer who was going to be sent into this world. Just as that family would kill their little pet lamb, God would have to judge his darling son on Calvary's cross. And oh, how it must have broken the father's heart to have to send his son into this world. A world filled with people who would hate him and reject him and ultimately crucify him. How it must have broken the father's heart to judge the son in place of sinners. But it was on that cross that heaven won the greatest victory of all of eternity. We're told that the lion lamb has prevailed. This word means to carry off into victory. Just because Jesus is a lamb does not mean that he is weak. Jesus carried off the victory in every possible turn. He carried off the victory on the mount of temptation. Satan thought that Jesus would fall. He carried off the victory in the garden of Gethsemane. Satan thought that Jesus would fail. He carried off the victory on the cross. Satan thought that he was a fool. He carried off the victory when he arose from the dead. Satan thought that he was finished. Satan thought that he had defeated Jesus when Jesus died upon that cross. Hell must have celebrated as the broken and bleeding body of Jesus was removed from that cross and placed into a borrowed tomb. For three days, the demons and devils of hell must have celebrated in glee as they celebrated and thought that they had won the greatest victory. Satan's victory over the Lord Jesus Christ was a very short-lived one, though. Because what Satan thought was a great victory was actually his greatest defeat. The cross was God's greatest accomplishment. In that cross, God displayed more power and glory than he did in all of creation. When Jesus died and cried, it is finished. It was a far greater declaration of accomplishment than let there be. Jesus is called lamb 28 times throughout the book of Revelation. Satan, the lamb's enemy, is described as a great red dragon. And Satan's power is described as massive. You see, he masses a great human army and a great demonic army, all intent upon coming and defeating God. Heaven's response to this vast display of of power is to send what? A little lamb. When a nation chooses a symbol, they usually choose an animal that suggests power and suggests authority. We know that the lion is the symbol of Great Britain. The bear is the symbol of Russia. The, maj- the majestic bald eagle is the symbol for us as the United States. When heaven looked for a symbol, it chose a slain lamb, a symbol of meekness, submission, and gentleness. Jesus conquered Satan's kingdom not by military might, but by meekness and compassion, love, and submission. So a little pet lamb won the victory. And because of that, he is worthy now to take the scroll. Before we leave that that idea, though, let's just take a moment to examine this lamb in detail. This lamb is in heaven. He is not in a manger. He is not on a dusty road in Galilee. He is not on a ship in the midst of a storm. He is not sitting weary and thirsty on the rim of a well. He is not hanging in shame and agony on a cross. He is not lying in a cold, sealed tomb. He is where he deserves to
to be. He is on a throne. He is in heaven. He is glorified and he is exalted. That is where we see the lamb here in Revelation chapter 5. This lamb had been there all along. The lamb had been in the middle of the action all along. John had not seen him until now, but he had been there the whole time. And let me just remind you that Jesus is always in the midst when we gather. We might not recognize him, but he is always here with us in the center of all that is going on. This lamb still bore the marks of having been slain, we're told. And when we see Jesus in heaven, we will see the marks that that he suffered as he paid the redemption price upon the cross of Calvary. For all of eternity, Jesus will bear those wounds of the cross as a constant reminder of what he did for us. There will be no room for pride in heaven. There will be no self-made men and women there. No. No one will be able to brag about how they got there. When we see him, we will see his love on permanent display. And what a constant cause for worship and praise. This lamb is also standing. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work of redeeming redeeming lost sinners was complete. But he stands in these verses because his work of delivering the earth is about to begin. But also we see the lamb has seven eyes. He is all wise. He's all knowing. The lamb is omniscient. Nothing escapes the gaze of the lamb. But also in verse 7 we see a completing Lord. The Lord takes this scroll out of the hand of God. And when he does, heaven breaks out in an anthem of praise. Heaven knows that Jesus is about to do the work of the lion. He is about to deliver the earth and all of creation from the bondage of Satan and from the blood of sin. He is about to complete the redemptive work. And the lamb, the lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. If this scroll really is the title deed to planet earth, then what right does he have to open it? There are at least three reasons that I see why he has that right. The world is his by right of creation because he made it. The world is his by rights of Calvary because he redeemed it. And the world is his by right of conquest. He will retake it. One day in heaven, the lamb will take the seven-sealed scroll out of the hand of the Father, and when he does, it will signal the beginning of the end for sin and for Satan. And on that day, Jesus will receive the glory that has been denied him by the world for so long. He will be shown to be worthy of worship and to rule and to reign over all of creation. He has earned the right because he squared off against all of hell and he carried off the victory. Jesus is the victor. Those who know him as their savior are victors as well. And when Jesus stands, when he takes that scroll and he opens it up, we will be standing there watching and we will rejoice as he takes the world by force. So the question becomes, the most important question becomes, who is Jesus to you? Because he will be who you let him be. You see, He will be the lion who will come to judge you someday if that's who you want him to be. But he can also be the lamb. He will be the lamb to all those 
who will repent of their sin and turn to him for salvation. I am so glad that I know him as the lamb. And because I know him as the lamb, I will never have to face him as the lion. And this morning I I plead with you, if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, come today. Come as he continues, even now, to offer salvation. As he continues to, to call your name for salvation. If you know that he is speaking to your heart and into your life this morning, would you come? Come to him as the lamb so that one day you do not have to face the lion. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And we are so thankful for the one who is worthy to take the scroll. Lord, we are so, so thankful for, for the one who came as a lamb and who died upon the cross of Calvary to pay our redemption price. Lord, a price that we could have never paid because we were not worthy. And Lord, this morning, if there's any here who do not yet know you, I pray that they would recognize their sin, first of all. And they would recognize their helplessness to stand before you on their own. And that this morning they would turn to you and they would cry out for salvation that they would accept you as their Lord and as their Savior. And Lord, that they would be changed forever. Lord, I don't know all the needs this morning, but you do. And so Lord, I pray that folks might respond this morning. We need to come to this altar and pray. If folks need to join this church family, whatever it needs to be that takes place in our hearts and our lives, in response to you, Lord, help us to be obedient. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today from Bryansburg Missionary Baptist Church. If you need spiritual help with your relationship with the Lord, please call 270-527-3757. Also, we would like to invite you to attend our services. On Sunday morning, Sunday school begins at 10 a.m. and our worship service is at 11 a.m. On Sunday evening, discipleship training begins at 5 p.m. with our worship service at 6 p.m. You may also view our Sunday worship services live on Mediacom Inspiration Channel 93. On Wednesday night, our worship service begins at 7 p.m. Once again, thanks for listening and may God bless you and your family.